Hey everyone, welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Yes, today, today on the show, this is our third installment of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. Yeah, so yeah. now we know how incredibly messed up he is. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, the origin story The has origin been completed. story. I also wanted to give credit, I forgot to mention that some of the information I've used for this these episodes also come from a short I think it was a doc on YouTube from May 2022 called the BTK killer born to kill. Okay. So um, you can find a lot of, a lot of his stuff on free short little, yeah, yeah. Like little interviews and things. Just, I was saying in the first episode, if, if this is one guy that you're really interested in, they don't cover him as much, which I think is really fascinating because he is real complex mm-hmm. and such a psychopath and so unaffected. He's just really interesting. I mean, he's horrible. And maybe that's why the average person shies away from maybe. that. Maybe he's not dramatic it's, enough. I don't know. Well, it the humanity feels as if it's lost oh, in this one. Maybe. Even though in these first two episodes, I feel like you really you really broke down the origin story of where all of that came from. Right. And and it does and this is what we try to do, obviously, from a psychological perspective, is it gives the even though he was a psychopath or had psychopathic traits very, very early on, it gives you a sense of who the human was, who the person was, what his, where he was coming from. At least you can, Mm -hmm. you can think he's evil or whatever you want, but it does give lay the groundwork of this was a kid and this was a human. And although incredibly maladaptive and sick and twisted and all those things, it tells yeah. you who he was. Yeah, it tells you how we how he got here yeah. for sure. So today we're going to walk through the timeline of his kills and some of the ways that he played with the police. And in the last episode, I talked about how he had developed a fascination for Jack the Ripper and his ability to stay unknown mm-hmm. and uh, anonymous, maybe is a better word. Yeah, sure. So he started to realized that he wasn't going to be able to stop these urges. He tried being the victim himself and playing out all these fantasies, reading about, and then he got to a point, he's like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to figure out a way to keep it separate. The problem though, is he had not yet fully carried out a kill yet. So he didn't know how he was going to feel when he did it. And I say when he did it, because he knew early on that eventually he would, if he wasn't able to stop this compulsion or this obsessive, these obsessive thoughts we know that up until this point, he was pretty controlled. His life through the military, not harming a single person that we know of anyway. And he's someone that would have admitted that because mm-hmm. he was very open to things. Mm-hmm. But then he finally gets to a place where he's decided he's ready to begin acting on his impulses. He can he can no longer go on. It's like he's been so thirsty for so long and not been given a drink of water. So he ends up actually very sloppy and impulsive in this first one. And it was very gruesome. His murders were intended to have a signature. His goal was to slowly choke to death a woman or a young girl and then humiliate them by masturbating on them. Where he was controlled is he, unlike Bundy, he just didn't go through the, the street looking for sorority houses and attacking anybody in his way. He would actually stalk his prey for weeks ahead of time. His best laid plans rarely went the way he wanted to because he either killed impulsively to quiet the urge or he didn't calculate the time it would take to kill his victims 
and he'd run out of time. Oh, okay. He did a lot of controlled stuff leading up to the killing. But then he he never, because you have to think of this, he cannot predict who's going to fight back, how many people are there, what obstacles might it take. Now, he would spend time as a, as a fake, you know, security installer mm. and get to know somebody's house and pretend like he was in, or he would install alarms. He actually did do that, but he would always choose these homes that he knew he wanted to bring. So he would, he would know enough, but we also have to remember that our reactions or behaviors are also dependent on the, on what's happening to us. So he would underestimate his victims like most killers do. Mm-hmm. He was more structured in the stalking and the planning, I guess is what I'm saying, and less in carrying out the actual murder. So while working at Coleman, Julie Otero caught the eye of Raider. She was a very attractive Hispanic woman who held his attention so much that uh, he would start to drive by her house. So they were co-workers at Coleman. At this time, he found out that Otero also had a preteen daughter, Josie, who he had become increasingly and powerfully attracted to. He was very attracted to Latin women or women who tended to possess what he called darker features. He also had shame around his attraction to women who weren't white. Again, growing up white conservative, there's always, there's always some either form of deprivation or shame in his fantasies or compulsions. He had actually a very conservative sex life with his wife and he would never allude to any kink or bondage, mostly because she was really religious, but he was also really careful at not giving himself away or having her suspect anything about his urges. And I think he just didn't know where was the line between having a healthy sexual life with a partner and that falling into something that would appear perverse or, you know, aggressive or whatnot because he didn't really know the difference so he was really good at keeping just a very simple sex life with her he lost his job in 1973 and after that he had he just had more time to stalk and familiarize himself with the Otero family including Julie her husband and five children so he was mostly focused on Julie and Josie the preteen daughter he planned to intrude the home when only Mrs. Otero and Josie were present. So his whole idea was, I'm going to see when dad leaves the house in the morning, kids, whatnot. He gave his plans a specific title, one that focused on the girl, Project Little Mex. Okay. I don't even think they were Mexican. Yeah, they were Puerto Rican. <laughs> okay. So the title indicated that he assumed incorrectly about the Oteros. That they were not of Mexican background. They were actually Puerto Rican. On January 15th, 1974, he strangled to death four members of the Otero family in their Wichita home, including the parents, Joseph and Julie, and two of their children, uh, Josie and Joseph Jr., before leaving with a watch and a radio. What he didn't, what Raider didn't notice until uh, later that morning was um, the family had a dog. And he had noticed some fresh footprints. The weather was really cold that day, January in Kansas. And he was like sweating profusely. His hands were shaking. Mm. The back door of the house was opened. Mm-hmm. And a nine-year-old boy, he saw this nine-year-old boy let a dog into the backyard. So this is where he encounters Joseph Jr., Joey. When Raider makes his way into the house, not only does he encounter Josie and Julie, the mom and the daughter, 
but dad's home, Mm -hmm. Joseph Sr. He did not count on this. So he ends up strangling the three of them, Joseph Jr., Joseph Sr., and Julie. He partially disrobes Josie, pulls down her underpants, down to her ankles, ties her legs together, and tightly binds her hands. He then winds a cord around her neck and attaches her to a sewer pipe. Strangulation and souvenir taking would become part of his MO after this. It'd become a pattern of his behavior. He would strangle them. He would take something from them. He would also leave semen at the scene and later said that he derived sexual pleasure from from killing. And on purpose, he left semen at the scene. That's right. As a, okay. And, And I would say that partially because this was before DNA. Yeah. Right. There was no, they weren't going to know who it was. There was a bravado that like, it doesn't matter whether you do that or not. Yeah, exactly. And I think something felt really powerful about that too. Like he's leaving his, you know, that's what it feels like to me too. Yeah. So, uh, the Otero's 15 year old son, Charlie comes home later that day and discovers, uh, his family dead. So this was the first big murder that he had and this would be one that would really pave the way for that hunger to want more he strikes again in 1974 Catherine bright another coleman employee returns home with her brother kevin to find raider waiting with a gun kevin somehow survives the gunshot to the head but he's unable to save his sister who raider stabs to death in October of 1974, he starts to, Raider starts to introduce himself to the police. So after one young man allegedly confesses to killing the Oteros with two friends, an editor at the Wichita Eagle receives a strange phone call that directs him to a mechanical engineering book at the Wichita Public Library. The police find the book and a letter wedged inside which reads, in part, Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity. The code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK, you will see him at it again. They will be on the next victim. So he was basically saying, don't give these guys the credit. You have the wrong kill. They did not commit these murders. I did see if you can find me. Mm. Along with including then unknown details of the Otero killings, the letters filled with what authorities came to recognize as the killer's peculiar brand of misspellings and grammatical errors, along with a distinct sexually suggestive signature. March 17th, 1977, he murders a mother of three. He enters a home by the way of a five-year-old child who opens the door. Because, you know, in the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone answered the door. Absolutely. Raider barricades the little boy and his two siblings in the bathroom before strangling his mother, their mother, Shirley Vian. The children eventually escape and provide police with a vague description of the intruder. December 8th, 1977, the BTK reports his next victim. After binding and strangling 25-year-old Nancy Fox, Raider heads to a payphone to point police to his handiwork. He says, you will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing, he bluntly tells the 911 dispatcher. January 31st, 1978, he reaches out with a poem. So remember in the last episode, he had learned poetry 
through Betty. I do remember, yeah. Yeah. So he starts to use it here. He February 10th, 1978, the threat is made public after another letter. So he's sending poems. He's sending letters. He's now taunting. Yeah. How many people, and this is what he says, how many people do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? He writes before reeling off a list of suggested nicknames, including the BTK Strangler, the Wichita Hangman, and the Asphyxiator. Lord. Seven years go by. Okay. April 27th, 1985. Raider's neighbor is strangled. What, do we know why the time, like what happened this time? Because <laughs> in the past, I mean, I realized he was on a bit of a run here from so the there, 70s. There's but. some stuff that happens later when I talk about, okay. um, in another episode, I'm going to talk about his home life a little bit. Okay. And some of the things that happened at that time, like his wife went into the hospital. There were times where he had to stop. Yeah. Right. We've, t- we just talked about that recently where yeah. I said something about some killer. I don't even I, remember who I was talking about. I want to believe that I have that in the next episode because I'm going to get, okay. What'll happen is the next episode will, I'll be talking about some of his psychology and some of the things that were happening while he was killing. Got it. So this is just to, Give yep. you all like a all the play murders. by play. Okay. Yeah. So his neighbor strangled. After an evening of bingo and dinner with her boyfriend, 53-year-old Marine Hedge is taken from her home um, in the Wichita suburb of Park City, just down the street from Raider's house. She's found dead by strangulation eight days later, though police fail to connect her murder to BTK at the time. So strange. And yeah. probably because of that gap. I, I imagine, yeah. September 16th, 1986, a husband takes the blame for the work of BTK. So Bill Weagerly returns home for lunch to find his two-year-old son sitting by himself and his wife, Vicky, dead in their bedroom. In the absence of other credible evidence, the husband becomes the primary suspect of Which Vicky's death. Which they often do. Of and course. this is also that break, right? That's and it's right. also, think about it, because it's the mid-80s and quote-unquote serial killing is really new. It's really new. Really new. Yep. So they probably, even though there were so many serial killers in the seventies and the FBI obviously had a very massive problem and, you know, profile issue on their hands. I don't, I don't know that they, they would have necessarily even connected. And plus police departments didn't talk to each other. That's right. And all they, that. that was why it took so long to get Richard Ramirez. You also have to look to 1985. He's no longer leaving as semen. Oh, okay. Because I would assume he wasn't because I think at this point, I think DNA was what? 84? Yeah. Or 80 somewhere in there. Like um, 1986, oh, the, 1986 was when the husband takes, yeah. So DNA is already happening, right? 1986 is actually when DNA started. Okay. That was the year of the murder. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So January 19th, 1991, the BTK kills for the final time. He throws a cinder block through a sliding door at the home of retiree Dolores Davis, strangles her to death and leaves her body by a bridge. So I think this was one he went to reenact. Seemingly preoccupied by his day-to-day duties as a Park City compliance officer and father of two, Raider seizes killing and BTK drops off the map. So once he's, again, <laughs> he's now preoccupied by his day-to-day duties. Yeah. So all of a sudden what? he, I would guess, here's my <laughs> guess is one thing that we know about even psychopaths or antisocial personality disorder, any of those really, you know, risky, um, and sure. dangerous folks. We know that that does go down with age. 
Yeah. And so we have to look at this is like nearly 20 years after things started. Yeah. He's not as young anymore. Okay. So some of it could be maybe he doesn't feel he his strength is the same. Maybe his testosterone levels are low. Yeah, and I have no idea about him personally at this time. And maybe we'll find out right. more about that later in the book where he talks about himself. Is that maybe he's not ejaculating that quickly anymore. He may not be. That's yeah. very true. January 2004, three decades after the first, uh, where he first killed the Oteros. The Wichita Eagle prints an article recalling the terror BTK wielded in the 1970s and suggesting that he had faded from memory after so many years. If there's any way to get a serial killer back on the map, they're yeah. still alive. Tell him they no longer matter. Yep. He later admits that this article spurs him to revive his deadly alter ego. Okay. March 19th. Rex. Guys, this is not that long ago. March 19th, 2004. The BTK announces his return. The Wichita Eagle receives an envelope from a Bill Thomas Kilman, BTK, containing a copy of Vicki Wiegerly's missing driver's license, photos of her body, and the BTK's distinctive signature, a chilling message that links her unsolved murder to BTK, and declares the Wichita terror to be, a ver- to be very much alive. So he continues to leave disturbing messages and mysterious packages in various public locations throughout 2005, including messages to find a cereal box containing graphic descriptions of his first murders and another doll fashioned in a death position. So remember, he used like these innocuous items. Mm -hmm. However, it's another section of the postcard which inquires as to whether his package was found at the local Home Depot that proves more interesting to authorities. So what does that mean? After poking around the store, investigators learn that one employee may have found a cereal box in the bed of his pickup truck. Mm. A search of his trash produces the box and a message asking if BTK could communicate via a computer floppy disk without being traced. So he basically said, listen, I'll continue to talk to you pass this disc back and forth as long as I can't be traced. So he says, if that's true, the police are instructed to run a newspaper ad with the message, Rex, it will be okay. So he's looking for this code. And if they say it in the ad, then he knows he can send the floppy disc. Right. January 28th. Playing so many games. So many games. So many power games. And so close to Let giving himself away. Let me see if I can away. get you to do what I want you to do. Right. You're my bitch. Yep. And you know that the police are like trying to figure this out. So he's just given enough, like put, you know, those videos where someone puts a dollar on a stick and pulls it to see how long someone will chase it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. So January 28th, 2005, the police signal BTK through the newspaper and run the advertisement. What does he do? He hands it over. Police found metadata embedded in a deleted Microsoft Word document that was unknown to Raider, still stored on the floppy disk. The metadata contained the words Christ Lutheran Church, and the document was marked as last modified by Dennis. Hmm. An internet search determined that a Dennis Raider was president of the church council. When investigators drove by Raider's house, a black Jeep Cherokee, the type of vehicle seen in the Home Depot surveillance footage, was parked outside. This was strong circumstantial evidence against Raider, but they needed more direct evidence to detain him. Hmm. So police obtained a warrant to arrest, uh, excuse me, a warrant to test a pap smear taken from Raider's daughter at the Kansas State University Medical Clinic. The DNA test showed a familial match 
between the pap smear and the sample from the Weigerly's fingernails, from Weigerly's fingernails. This indicated that the killer was closely related to Raider's daughter and combined with other evidence was enough for the police to arrest him. What year are we now? We are in 2005. Okay. His daughter wrote a book that came out maybe eight years ago or something, maybe more recent than that. I have not read it, but I'm very interested in reading it because uh, I saw an interview around the time that it came out about her experience of him as a father mm-hmm. and the hindsight of what it was like, how, how much they could say they really never suspected it. Although looking back, she goes, you know, yeah. we had this, we had this room in our house that was locked that nobody was allowed to go right. in. And but you don't think of anything like that don't. as a kid, as a kid, if that was the normal, I mean, we trust our parents when we're little yeah. until they give us reason not to. That's right. Yeah. You know, to me, like I'm, I'm, we'll, you know, we'll talk about this later, but to me, like everything you were asking me around, how is this man living his life and doing this Mm -hmm. and going home and going to church and loving his kids, his wife, Yep. uh, you know, he goes to such lengths and I'll talk about this in the next episode of what he did to hide his materials and how paranoid he would get if there was any chance he was would not be returning home, like what's the chance of me getting in a car accident today? Or I need to keep it away from the house because if if something happens to me, I don't want these items found at the house. It had to be so exhausting to be him. Absolutely. And I feel like, because I think of Richard Kuklinski, who mm-hmm. we've done on the show before, and how he had a double life. And I feel like Dennis, and maybe this will come up in in future episodes about BTK, is that I feel like he must have had some narrative around what that was for him. So with Kuklinski, Kuklinski was also very self-reflected. And he also knew who he was and who he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And he could talk eloquently, well, you know, as as eloquently as we can about it. And that's why they did so many interviews for mm-hmm. HBO and everything with him and that, you know, there's books and his, you know, all of that. So mm-hmm. it reminds me of that a little bit. Only for him, the narrative was, this is my business and this is how I get, I, I channel my psychopathy basically yeah. because I kill for the mafia. And so right. maybe there's some reason for it or whatever. And with Raider, it's like, well, I have this alter ego that I need to feed mm-hmm. and this is how I do it. Mm-hmm. And this, and I take breaks and I punish myself probably during those breaks. Like I'm making that up, but like I imagine during those breaks, he's engaging in some of those behaviors that you said last time where he's, you know, flogging himself by, yeah. you know, mm-hmm strangling himself or whatever he engaged in. And so I just, I'll I'll be even more interested to know the aftermath of like, because I'm sure you'll get into obviously after he was caught and then how that progressed. And then more in this book that the book that you've been reading about, you know, his reflection on all of these things, right? Like his reflection on all these murders and what he says about them would be really interesting to know. Cause I'm sure there's some narrative. (laughs) There's some story he tells himself that makes sense to him about how he and why he could compartmentalize sure. that and have a daughter and have a, you know, all of that. I'm, yeah. I'll be really interested to hear all of to that. To be continued. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. I did want to mention really quick because while you were talking, I looked up 
uh, his daughter's book uh-huh. is her name is Carrie Rawson, K-E-R-R-I Rawson, and it's called A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. And it just came out in 2019. So just wanted you guys to have that because I know Kathy's been really good about saying the books and documentaries and stuff. So if you want to see, you know, the materials yeah. that are out there. A whole too. other perspective, right? Right. She had very a front row seat. Yeah, and that would be very interesting just and provide some I, you know, it was a New York Times bestseller, of course, and and it's just always heartening to feel that something good came out of something so awful. And maybe maybe she is that. I don't know her, of course. So mm-hmm. we'll see. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate you very much. Please consider following us on social media or becoming a, a patron on Patreon. We would, we would love that. It's a great community that we've built there. So thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.